We're not leaving the prophets. I am finishing up the minor prophets today, but we're not leaving the prophets because I decided this year for my series of sermons regarding Christmas and approaching Christmas that I was going to spend the next three Sundays looking at Christmas through the eyes of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, through the eyes of Micah, uh, although he is one of the minor prophets. Uh, but uh, So we're going to stay the rest of this year in the prophets. And uh, still haven't figured out where we're going January. So I'll, I promise I'll get to work on that right away. Because now I'm starting to feel pushed in terms of getting my reading done and preparing ahead of time. I uh, had some fun this week. I actually did this. Didn't I do a good job? It's a dot to dot, connect the dots. I did it though, just like we often read the Bible. We read a passage here. We go over and read a passage here. Oh, we'll, we'll do a little bit with these passages and bring them together. But by and large, this is how we approach our study of God's Word. I was listening the other night uh, because uh, Jesse and uh, Autumn left to go down and, and get Austin. and So I was listening to a, a podcast, uh, watching it on YouTube an interview with my good friend Shane Wood, uh, dear brother, uh, brilliant scholar. And uh, one of the guys that was doing the interview, who is a Christian, who has a Christian podcast, put his head down and said, you know, Shane, I hate to admit this, but I have never read the book of Revelation, starting with chapter 1, verse 1, and going through chapter 22, the last verse. I've never done that. I think I've read all of the book of Revelation, but I, I don't know that I've ever done it straight through like that. And this is what we end up with. We end up with a hodgepodge of teachings that we choose to relate in one day, way or another. But... They, they really don't get connected the way they need to be connected. And so we come up with all of these strange beliefs. That's right, you heard me right. We come up with all of these strange beliefs like the rapture. The rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. And if anything, if you look at the parables of Jesus, when it talks about those who are taken, it's not the good who are taken first. The good are left behind. It's the weeds that are taken, gathered, and burnt. I want to be left behind if that's the way it's going to happen when judgment comes. Instead, same picture... 
See the difference? What's the difference? That when we connect the dots the way they're supposed to be connected, it comes together in a message that is clear and relevant and the story of the Bible is a story about God's love for mankind who turned their backs on Him and went their own little ways and yet He continues to do all He can to show us that He loves us and that He wants a relationship with us. And that's why I can't stress enough the importance of context. Context. My number one principle of interpreting the Bible comes from my mentor, Bob Lowry. And I love to hear Shane say that he has that as his number one principle of interpretation for the same reason from his mentor, Bob Lowry. The principle of humility. No matter how many years I spend studying that, no matter how many books I have read, the way I have to start is by saying to you, I might not be right. I'm human. And therefore, that's why it's important that whenever we study Scripture, we do it as a community where we can bounce those things off of one another. Well, what about this verse? What about this? And the second thing about interpretation is that we understand and interpret the difficult passages by the clear passages. We use Scripture to help us understand Scripture. Not the newspaper, not timelines. And so as we are looking at these books of prophecy and have been looking at them, I think it's important for us to understand that many of you, myself included by the way, were taught that prophecy was equivalent to prediction. And that's how we predominantly have thought about that word when we've seen it. Bob did a study of Revelation. Shane did a study of the whole Bible. Every time the word prophecy, prophesy, comes up, in Revelation, over 90% of the times that prophecy comes up, it has to do not with prediction, not with the future, but with presenting God's Word regarding situations that are going on at the present. And when Shane did the same study of the Bible, 87% had to do with proclamation and only 13% had to do with the future. And we have flipped that. And the problem that has created... Well, let's just take Revelation, for example. I'm not old enough to remember it because it happened on the year I was born. 1953, a group called the Millerites. The world's coming to an end. They sold everything they had. They went to a place, got all together, got ready. And guess what? Well, since it's 2020 and we're all here, the world didn't come to an end. One person wrote a book titled 
88 reasons why the Lord's going to return in 1988. Guess what he did in 1989? He had to revise it to 89 reasons why the Lord is going to return in 1989. There is a website that goes through all of the predictions that people have made using newspapers, headlines, and all of that to understand and interpret the book of Revelation. And it shows how every one of them is wrong because here we are, November of 2020, and the world hasn't come to an end yet. And the author says, if these theologians and Bible teachers are wrong about the second coming, how do we know that they weren't wrong also about the first coming? Are you hearing me? Tim LaHaye and Jenkins were wrong about their predictions about when the world was going to end and all of that junk they wrote in that series called Left Behind. Fortunately, they were honest enough to put in the beginning of it that it was, in fact, fiction. But a lot of people read right over that. The best synonym... For prophecy is not prediction. The best synonym for prophecy is actually proclamation. Proclamation. And when you read those passages that talk about and are in prophetic books in the Old Testament or the New Testament, three things continually come up in prophetic passages. Who God is, what God desires, and what God demands of His people. Who God is, what God desires, and what God demands of His people. The book of Revelation doesn't give us a time when the Lord is going to return. In fact, what does it do? It repeats the teaching of Jesus. And what was the teaching of Jesus? It's going to happen like a thief in the night. If you knew when a thief was coming, he'd be captured. What's the teaching behind thief in the night? To be prepared, to be ready. So that no matter when that thief comes, you're ready and you're prepared. Let me give to you a definition of prophecy. It's not a new definition. It's thousands of years old, actually. Prophecy is the proclamation of God's Word to God's people regarding God's will as to how God's people are to live in light of a future that belongs solely to God. That's what a revelation is about. In fact, the end comes at least three times. It comes at the end of the seals. It comes at the end of the bowls of wrath. But each time we are given the answer who and how. Not when. When. 
Obadiah wrote this short little book of the Old Testament that we're looking at probably soon after the armies of Babylon had in fact destroyed Jerusalem. Most people agree and date the book of Obadiah somewhere around 587 B.C. While the Babylonians were taking the Israelites into captivity, the people of Edom helped capture those Israelites who were running and and they turned them over to the Babylonians. And after most of the Israelites were in captivity, the Edomites actually took up residency in the Judean villages. Come on. There we go. Glitches. And the fact that the Edomites were assisting the Babylonians angered God. I mean, these were the the Israelites uh, who God had chosen as His people when He chose Jacob over Esau. Remember the story? Jacob and Esau were twins. Jacob wasn't the oldest. Esau was. And so Esau, by all rights, should have gotten both the birthright and the blessing. And Mama, Rebecca, had a favorite son. And so she took her favorite son, Jacob, in there and threw deceptiveness and trickery managed to get that blessing and that birthright for Jacob, not Esau. And the Edomites were in fact the offspring, the family of Esau. Jacob was later named Israel. He fathered the twelve tribes. But instead of helping the Babylonians, they should have been helping their relatives. Obadiah prophesied that Edom would be repaid for mistreating God's people and that the house of Jacob would be restored. So what we actually have in Obadiah is a message of judgment, but also a message of hope. And it's basically divided into two sections. Verses 1 to 14, it's only one chapter. Verses 1 to 14, that Edom was going to be humbled. And verses 15 down to 21, that the day of the Lord would come and it would bring both judgment, but it would also bring hope. It's a strong message of condemnation. And notice how it even begins. The vision of Obadiah. Vision. Only Ezekiel and Amos refer to their prophecies as visions. But it's not just a vision of Obadiah. 
Thus says the Lord God, the Sovereign Lord. Two different names for God. Concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord. It's a messenger formula. Obadiah is coming and he's got a vision that has a message involved with it. And notice what the first part of that message is. It's a message about their delusion as a nation. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your hearts deceived you. You'll live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwellings who say in their hearts, who can bring us down? They were living in delusion. They had a false sense of security. That's what he's writing in verses 1-4. to He's saying, hey, look at what happened to Israel. Now look at what's happening to Judah. He's not predicting. He's just simply adding. Two plus two equals four. If you think that Israel being defeated the way they were taken into exile, and now Jerusalem falling and those people being taken into exile, don't think for a minute that the Babylonians aren't going to do the same to you. Wake up. You're not living in security. I mean, they were in the iron and the copper mining area. They prided themselves in their secure geographical position of the hills and the mountains. Their pride would be the key to their fall. You know, because of their geographical location there in the mountains of Sierra, they felt they were very secure. We can just go up and be in our caves and they can't come and get us. And in those high caves and other places up in the mountains, they thought they were like eagles soaring, nesting among the stars. In fact, Obadiah says that. You say in your heart who will bring you down to the ground. Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, they had a false sense of trust. And, and Obadiah fills in the, the details a little bit. He speaks about, in verses 5-7, to seven, how the thieves are going to come. And they're going to take everything. Second, he compared their humiliation to field workers who would go out and gather. And contrary, remember when we studied Ruth? What did they do when they harvested the crops? They always let what fell stay behind for the poor. Obadiah says, guess what? That's not going to happen when they come in and plunder you. Why, they're going to even pillage all of that. They're not going to leave any gleanings. And all your allies, which happen to be the Babylonians, 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you, they deceived you. The end of verse 7. You have no understanding. You have no wisdom. And that's kind of funny because Edom had been known for their wisdom. And what's Obadiah saying? Man, you've got a false sense of security. You've got a false sense of trust. You even have a false sense of your wisdom. And God's going to knock you out of national standing. He's going to bring you down because of your pride. Now here's my question. You're smart people. As a nation, don't we as the United States need to be careful that we're not delusional? That we haven't separated ourselves from God as a nation in such a way that in fact... Our wisdom is not going to prevail. That that might be a delusion as well. So where does Obadiah go next then? Well, in verses 10 to 14, he shows that there are signs that they need to wake up and notice that are actually a nation's path to destruction. And it also applies to our individual lives. And one of the first things that he says is that one of the paths to destruction is complacency. And I want to tell you, I shared this with you last week. I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with not condemning myself for not opening my mouth even more. Sometimes I'm told I I run my mouth too much. I'm so glad that we entered into prayer on behalf of Elena and that her mother chose not when doctors and medical people were saying, this baby doesn't have a chance, you should probably terminate the pregnancy. I'm so glad that we stuck behind and said, we're here for you. We're praying for you in your pregnancy. We're praying for your baby. Because literally, hundreds of thousands of unborn babies are being slaughtered. And we're just complacent. You know, basically what Obadiah is saying is, when you think that you've got everything figured out, and you're overly satisfied with your life, then you begin to not realize what the truth really is. When you stop trying to grow and improve, you're going to die. And a lot of us develop the attitude, well, I don't care what you do as long as it doesn't affect me. Several years ago, a couple of pregnant uh, pres- presidencies ago, 
we heard a major group of people saying, well, that's his personal life, not his, it's his private life, not his public life. As if somehow you can separate them. The Edomites were sitting and watching their relatives be destroyed and and they didn't even care. When they started escaping, they grabbed them and turned them over to the Babylonians. They just turned a blind eye to what was going on. And Christians, we need to understand that when we become comfortable, we become complacent. And if we are trying to protect our own little part of the world while ignoring what's going on everywhere else, we have a problem. Complacency is built upon pride. And the Bible says pride goes before the fall. Another path to destruction that I think comes out here in these verses in Obadiah is is that of complicity. It's actually a legal term that means being a part of the crime. Standing and watching something unjust happen and doing nothing. It's just as bad as committing the crime. My family knows... My family knows that if I am in an establishment and a guy comes in with a weapon and starts shooting people in the place, I'm going to do anything and everything I can do to take him out and stop him. Even if it means losing my life. I am not going to be complicit to his behavior with the knowledge that I have that I could probably do something to stop him. Not only did the Moabites stand and watch the Babylonians kill, steal, and destroy, not only did they hand their relatives over to the Babylonians, but they just sat back watching and then moved in to take over the land that had been their relatives' land. And that's why in verses 15 and 16, condemnation comes. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Do you hear that? All the nations. He doesn't just say, now you Edomites. He doesn't just say it happened to Israel and Judah. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Now listen to this next phrase. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Have we neglected the poor around the world living in luxury as we do? Have we sat back at times and allowed people? See, I'm one of those, and I hope it doesn't offend you too much, but I'm one of those who believes that when we have the military ability and capability, we shouldn't allow some other nation to come and jump on another country and take advantage of them. As you have done, it will be done to you. 
Your deeds shall return upon your head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. Come on, Obadiah. Of course, if they're drinking, they're swallowing. Or maybe is he trying to emphasize something? Because he doesn't use the same word twice. That second word, it means to slurp or drink noisily. In other words, what he's saying is, as you have been drinking, man, when it comes their turn, they're just going to gulp it and slurp it and really get into it when they destroy you. And you shall be as though they never had been. Judgment. But you know what? I don't think most people even consider that there are consequences to sin. The hardest thing sometimes to remember, however, is that it's not our job to judge, it's God's. But Jesse will tell you this. I used to kid her all the time about how she was one of only two girls that I knew that came out of her neighborhood with all of their teeth. Now, what is behind that? What's behind that is she lived in a neighborhood that was very poor, that didn't have a real good education in terms of nutrition and health and all of that, didn't have the availability of dentists and all, It wasn't a statement that was pejorative. It was just a statement of fact. A part of the conditions in which she grew up resulted in one of the consequences and that was all kinds of issues regarding health. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. Well, I'm dying anyway, but most of her friends look at least 10 to 15 years older than her. Why? Because of what the hardness of that lifestyle does. The consequences of that sin. And that's why in verses 17, Obadiah moves on. And he talks about deliverance. But, I love it when a verse starts with either but or therefore. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. What a dismal prospect. But notice how he began. God's children will receive their inheritance. 
He calls Zion the holy mountain. The place where Judah received their judgment and where the fugitives were cut down. There's going to be that great reversal. And the house of both Jacob and Joseph shall possess what? Their possessions that they were promised. Even in fact the returning exiles would be able to receive what God had promised. And in fact, there on that mount that's just outside of Jerusalem, so here is a veiled prediction. Here on that mount just outside of Jerusalem, what other mount was just outside of Jerusalem? Mount Calvary. Verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion. There were a lot of false prophets that came saying they were going to take care of Jerusalem. And somehow they would rule, they would judge, they would administer judgment, they would punish Mount Esau. But notice how Obadiah concludes. I love the last sentence of Obadiah. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Did you notice that listed in the text there in verses 18 to 21? There are the names of nations that Israel had that had taken advantage of, of Israel. And now that fire and flame of which Obadiah speaks, those are symbols of judgment, of divine punishment. But and because that's all in a divine oracle, look at verse 18, for the Lord has spoken. It is going to happen. It is a prediction in in that sense. But what's the focus? The focus isn't upon the fact that there's going to be judgment. The focus is going to be on is the focus is on the fact that God is sovereign. God is on the throne. God is in control. And I'm going to tell you right now, no matter how bad things might get over the next four years. God's still on the throne. My king wasn't even listed for me to vote. My ruler wasn't even listed for me to vote. Because I am a part of the citizen, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And my king is Jesus. And when I get to the end of Revelation, 22, guess where we're at? Do you know how the Bible begins? Seriously. There's a book back here if you want to read it by by chance. I bought an extra copy. We ordered an extra one. The book's titled (coughs) Between Two Trees. Written by Shane Wood. Because the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden... There by the tree of what? 
life. And guess where Revelation 22 ends? There in the garden by a river that has the tree of life. That's in the, incidentally giving 12 different kinds of fruit all year long. Here's the problem though. You and I, we didn't live in Eden. And you and I are not to Revelation 22. We live between those two trees. And that means life is tough. And what we need to do is be students of God's Word so that we can look at what happens to Israel, what happens to Judah, and realize that if we are Edom and we don't change and we don't repent, there's no reason why it's not going to happen to us as well. But the last line, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray.